Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Longtime followers of the podcast probably know my love for the short story form. I am always on the lookout for new collections, and Kelly Link delivers these strangely wondrous collections time and time again. She was on the show with me back in 2015 for Girl in Trouble, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer. She also authored Three Zombie Stories, Pretty Monsters, Magic for Beginners, Stranger Things Happen, and you can perhaps recognize a theme in her work from these titles, even if you are unfamiliar with them. She is the co-founder of Small Beer Press and co-edits the occasional zine Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. I believe she also now owns a uh, new and used bookstore with her husband. So how, how cool is that? Maybe we get a chance to talk about that too. Kelly's newly released collection, White Cat, Black Dog, is out this month. It's published by Random House. Kelly says, I think short stories and fairy tales can offer a moment of refreshment. I hope my collection offers something similar. Good company, strange characters, and unexpected and maybe slightly disconcerting pleasures. And indeed it does. It is my pleasure to welcome Kelly back on the show. Before she comes on, just wanted to bring up your weekly friendly reminder to visit our Patreon page. After over two decades and a thousand episodes, and after leaving the radio station, we started the Patreon page to get more hands-on and in direct contact with our listeners. Hopefully the show has boosted your writing in some way or given you some useful advice. Hopefully you enjoy these behind-the-scenes chats with authors. If so, look for us there. You'll get a few perks for your membership, weekly writing tips and tricks, and some other things that Barbara and I find of interest for writers. You can see all the benefits by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us out and we appreciate it all. On with the show. Kelly, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's good to be here again after an extended pause. Break. Yeah, you know what? I just checked my calendar. And if we were talking on March 4th, it would be eight years to the day since we last talked. So yeah, extra good to catch up. And I think back then we didn't even know Get in Trouble was going to be a Pulitzer finalist. So congrats on that. Well, thank you. Now that was very unexpected. So I must tell you, when people ask your favorite books from childhood, when you know you were sitting under your covers with a flashlight, Grimm's Fairy Tales always topped my list. I mean, I was such a Grimm's hoarder as a kid. And and I had like this old stained copy from, I have no idea where I got it, but probably my grandparents' closet or something. And I couldn't get enough of those. And so when I got your sort of take on those old tales, it was just pure heaven. And um, I don't know that they're, you know, now that they're sanitizing uh, Roald Dahl for our protection, if they're doing that with those old Grimm's fairy tales, but I hope not. But your stories, thank God, are not sanitized for our protection. So (laughs) I'll kind of let you take us a little bit into the collection and lay the foundation so we can jump off from there. But maybe just talk first about how that fairy tale structure came to you and laid kind of the foundation for this book. Absolutely. You know, my mom moved into a house next door to us at the start of the pandemic and uh, brought things with her, uh, including books from, from my childhood. And one of those was the, the, the anthology of fairy tales that I remember loving. And so I was looking at that recently and I realized that it's, it's a reader's digest bind up of very short retellings 
of various fairy tales. It's very, very long, but it had some Hans Christian Andersen, some Grimm's, a bunch of other fairy tales. But I am pretty sure that the Reader's Digest version of those fairy tales were pretty sanitized. I think we go through (laughs) waves where things get cleaned up and then we get things that are closer to the original stories again. You get you get the fairy tales. Fairy tales are very malleable, so you can dirty them up. You can put them to strange purposes. There's a lot that you can do with them. And I have always used fairy tales as, as a touchstone for me, that, that my two touchstones when I'm writing. I love ghost stories and I love fairy tales. And so it was the thing that was new about this collection was making the starting places, making the foundational texts for the stories more apparent. Every story in the collection has a subtitle and the subtitle is just the title of the original fairy tale that that story is in conversation with. So did you start there? Did you kind of pluck out some of your favorite old tales and then figure out your own retellings of them? Or did I assume the kind of the the fairy tale came first and then the story came popping out of the head of it? Not always, believe it or not. I wrote three stories and all of which ended up in this collection. But the first three stories that were written for this book, it wasn't until the third one that I realized that this was maybe a track that I wanted to stay on. The third story was the white, it's called The White Cat's Divorce. It's a sort of sequel to um, the fairy tale, uh, The White Cat. And when I wrote that, I went back and I looked at the first two stories and thought, I can see which fairy tales attach to these. Or in, in one case, one is one is a ballad, Tamlin. And I thought I should just keep on doing this. And some of the stories came, the fairy tale came first and other stories, I had an idea for a story and then it was very pleasurable to think about what fairy tales I could use to sort of structure the story that I wanted I wanted to tell. Some of them are more direct retellings or are closer to the originals and some of them, it's it's pretty indirect. Some of them are more slippery, but I wanted that. I didn't want every story to have the same kind of relationship with fairy tales. I just wanted the fairy tale to be there in, in some aspect. And tell me which one you wrote first. It was Tamlin, the, is that the White Road? No, the Tamlin one is The Lady and the Fox. And uh, so that's the first one you wrote? That is the first one I wrote. I wrote that for an anthology that a, a young adult writer, Stephanie Perkins, was putting together. And she had a couple of rules for the stories that would be in that anthology. They had to be set in winter. They were supposed to be romantic and they had to have a happy ending. And I had never been asked to write something with a happy ending before. <laughs> and that seemed pretty delightful. And I also really love the ballad of Tamlin, which does have a, a happy ending. And I thought, well, let's see if I can can write something contemporary that has that same feeling. I am not even familiar with, are they Swedish ballads? I'm trying to remember their... No, they're, they're, it's an English... Oh, Scottish. Actually, it's Scottish. It's a yeah. Scottish ballad about a 
woman who uh, goes to an abandoned great house, Carter Hall, where she has an, an encounter with a mysterious knight. She becomes pregnant. And then when she goes back, she discovers that this knight belongs to the fairy queen. And so she has to figure out how to basically win him from the fairy queen. I really love all of the constraints that it sounds like you also love working under, which are probably deadlines. If somebody tells you, you have to do this, <laughs> that's always a good motivator, given an assignment. And then given these parameters around the assignment of it has to be set in winter and it has to end on a happy note. Those are, I think those are so helpful for writers to have some boundary in which you can that almost unleashes my creativity a little bit more. So I love that that these were kind of born out of constraints. Absolutely. And uh, constraints are something that you can give yourself. It is really pleasurable when somebody else gives them to you. It's like being given a box with a couple of mysterious items in it and then being told, now make something out of this that that feels like you. It, that's an enormous pleasure. I really was interested in how many themes of abandonment came through these stories, parental abandonment, lover abandonment. And I was wondering, as you looked over the collection after it was finished, do you see your kind of areas of concern as a writer shifting as you age and as you've done a bunch of collections? Or do you find yourself continuing back to these? Because there's I mean, there's a lot of issues of love, which fairy tales always return to, and death, which fairy tales love also. Sort of those big perennial issues. But, uh, you know, over the course of these, I could just see theme after theme, abandonment, death, love emerging. And I, and I was wondering if those have been sort of enduring themes for you, or if you can see a shift in your thinking over time. That's really interesting. You know, when I began thinking about the collection as a whole, very late on, I realized that where my previous collection had been about people engaging in pretty bad behavior, sometimes understandably, that this was really a collection about people who were trying to do their best. They were trying to do the right thing. And I think you're absolutely right that abandonment is runs all the way through the book. And I think that I am very interested in people who in hard circumstances or when things are really going wrong, that they are still trying to hold on to the things that they care about. And many of these, you know, I was writing over the course of the, the pandemic in which I think plays factors into the sense that, that things are going wrong, that things are hard, that loss is present and yet people are going to still try to hold on th to things that matter to them. Yeah. One of those that came out for me, the white road <laughs> that I alluded to a little before I got the name wrong, came from the uh, musicians of Bremen. Am I saying Bremen, yep. right? Yeah. And it had a little station 11 quality to me of, you know, this post-apocalyptic sort of landscape and, and these traveling theater people. And I was wondering how much that was on your mind. I felt a little pandemic-ish <laughs> during that story. Yeah, I was wondering if, if that was playing in your head as you were doing these. Yeah, you know, that I love Station Eleven. And the starting place for the White Road for me was, I was, an, I was imagining 
a group of actors on a stage who were um, engaged in improvisation. And the improvisation involved one of them pretending to be dead in a coffin and the kinds of things that this would draw out of the other actors and the way that it would sort of change the relationships between them. And that wasn't quite enough to hang a story on. And so I began to think about a setting where the improvisation that they were engaged in was not just play or practice, but it was necessary for some reason. And so that was the starting place for the story. And then I I still have an enormous concern about the fact that it is very much in the genre of Station Eleven. If you allow that Station Eleven is is a genre, every every book sort of exists in its own world, its own space. And if you love something, then when you're writing, part of your writing is going to respond to the things that you love. And so my concern was, you know, can I allow it into so much of the same territory that 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 novel occupies and I'm still not sure about it. But tonally, The White Road is more of a horror story. It's about monsters and it's about people behaving monstrously for for good reasons, but nevertheless sort of doing pretty terrible things. And the other thing about that story is that I wrote that before the pandemic, maybe three years before the pandemic, two years. That's one of the earlier stories in the collection. And so for me, it feels very, very detached. However, I will say that during the pandemic, I have found fiction about pandemics very comforting. One of my favorite books over the last couple of years was Jim Shepard's Phase Six, which I love. Yeah, you said so much in there that I that I'd love to unpack. The the first thing you said that's really interesting to me is whatever that first idea, kernel idea came to you wasn't enough to hang a story on. And I'm wondering at what point you know or how you grapple with what is enough to hang a story on <laughs> because this is <laughs> This is something I struggle with myself. You know, short fiction has to do so much heavy lifting in such a compressed period of time. And so I think the deception of it, for especially for new writers, is that it doesn't have to be as thick as a novel thematically or area of concern wise. And in fact, I think sometimes it has to be thicker. And so I think they can be deceptive in like, oh, I can get 10 pages, 12 pages, 20 pages out of this thing. And so maybe in this story or other stories, you can talk about that process of knowing how heavy the weight has to be for a story to make it off the ground. I guess that's a counterintuitive <laughs> metaphor, but how much load it has to carry to be enough. And when maybe in this story, you knew you had it, like you understood the story isn't Station Eleven at all, or the story isn't about this, whatever it started off as. It's It's really this what people will do to each other and what they will what they're capable of doing i don't know if this question is making any sense but it it is so i i'm not a my i i don't know that anybody would call my prose style maximalist but in terms of what i imagine when i begin a story being able to contain or what i want to 
do within the constraints of that story. I am a maximalist. I like digressions. I like a lot of things happening. I want there to be surprises, not just with the characters or with the events, but in terms of throwing together source the my source material. I want I want to have things that feel very disparate, but in actual fact feel explosively interesting when you throw them together. And so I do think of The White Road as as a as a character story about the narrator. It's a story about somebody who it's has is carrying a lot of grief and also a lot of guilt and yet is is still hoping for something that he can't even name to himself. But it is also a story about a community of actors and the kind of relationships they have with each other on the road. And it is also a monster story. There is there's something monstrous, so monstrous that the characters for a long time won't even name what it is that they are afraid of, which is um, nevertheless always on the periphery of their lives. And, and then the other big part of the story is you know, the, the fairy tale, the music, musicians of Bremen or Bremen, it's the, how do I take a very light comic story, a fairy tale that is, that is comic about a group of animals who scare off some robbers by making a lot of noise and make that instead a story about a monster where the, the, the fear comes from sort of the other side of the equation, the thing that the, the, troop of people encounter while they are, are on the road. You know, they, they, they are afraid of something worse in, in the mu- musicians of Bremen, the, the robbers are afraid of the animals. And so for me, I want a lot of different things that I can pick and choose from, that I can integrate, that I can put, put together in, into sort of a, a stew when I'm, when I'm thinking about the characters who are inhabiting that space. Can you remember the point at which in this story it really opened up and revealed itself to what it was about? And when you finished that first draft, does the first draft bear any resemblance to how it turned out? Because I'm always wondering for a writer, especially in the short story form, there's such an element of surprise of, wow, I didn't understand what this was until I was deep, deep into it. And then the process of reworking it. So I'm always wondering what, you know, first draft to last draft tends to look like and if they bear any relationship to each other at all. I'm going to preface this by saying that that this is not how I always work, but this was a story that I wrote in a very short span of time. I'd spent a lot of time thinking about things that I wanted in it. But I wrote the story in the course of about 48 hours. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. And the 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 place where the thing that I needed to do in order to write it that quickly was to figure out the tonal quality that I wanted and the voice of the person who was telling the story. And it is not a a voice or a mode that I, I normally work in. His his voice is very formal. And slightly removed, but he's a person who feels a lot, who has repressed some of that. Once I had that first paragraph, the rest came fairly easily, in part because I was due at a workshop 
sort of 48 hours later and I had to bring a new story. This is a workshop that a friend of mine runs. I've gone off and on for years. Everyone brings one new story. And then we, over the course of the week, meet every day to discuss the stories that, that we've brought. And you cannot show up without a story and the story has to be new. And so I was, my constraint, part of my constraint there was I have to have something and I want it to be good enough that my friends who will be at this workshop are not going to be horrified that I've, I've, you know, have this sort of undercooked thing uh, on a plate, which I'm handing them. And so even in revision, I think the, the voice for me had been so much of a key into the story that I was able to map out the rest of that story by following that voice. And so not every story is like that for me. I have stories that I have worked on for years, um, but that story came very, very quickly. I love that. And still the parental abandonment. <laughs> There's still a little <laughs> bit of that in there. I started yeah, watching I mean, for that. And I'm like, these poor kids. You 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 have to understand that, you know, I I am so far from being parentally abandoned myself that my my mom now lives next door. You know, I see her <laughs> on a daily basis. I have chickens and she and I hang out with the chickens almost every day that there's not snow on the ground. So I am I am not abandoned. And yet I think that is also that's a big piece of a lot of fairy tales. Yes, people who set out into the world, whether it's of their own volition or not, because they don't have anything at home. Yeah. And fairy tales are so archetypal, right? So one thing can stand in for another. And, you know, we could all feel a little abandoned by the world in the last little bit. Absolutely. So, yeah, one thing doesn't need to equal the other in fairy tales, nor nor in these stories. So, yeah, I really appreciated that aspect, too, that you could have these sort of stand-ins that just meant something so much bigger. And you would finish all of these stories. My experience with them was that I'd almost forget where how I got there, you know, which is which is true of fairy tales too. You you end and you, you the, this whole world has opened up and you're like, wait, where did the story start? It's so <laughs> so different. Oh, than, yeah. The other thing that are great in these and that I remember from the Grimm's fairy tales were the the um, amazing illustrations. And you were even able to do that in these stories. We get some some really whimsical, magical illustrations in here that don't map onto the story exactly, but that add this new layer of texture to think about when the story is over. And I, I really loved those. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be. Sure. I have been really lucky in that I have gotten to work with, with a number of illustrate, illustrators who's, who mean a lot to me. And Sean Tan is one of my favorite artists working. I have loved his work since I read The Arrival. And when I published a collection of stories for young adults, Pretty Monsters, he provided illustrations for those. And so when this sold to Random House, I emailed him. And he is a very, very busy guy with a lot of different kinds of work that he is engaged in. And so my hopes were not high. And he emailed back and said, I probably can't do it, but send me the stories just so I can see. And he read them and then we talked a little bit more and he's like, you know what, I think I'm going to try and do it. And that, you know, whatever else happens with the collection, the fact that I got to work with him 
was really, really, really one of the best parts of writing stories, in part because I get to see something about them through his eyes. And one of the things that I love, there's one illustration in particular in here, which tells you something about the story that the story doesn't name. And the story is a story called The Girl Who Did Not Know Fear. And there is a piece of the story that I went back and forward with my editor on. And I'm going to go ahead and drop a spoiler here because I think this is interesting. So in some ways, it's a werewolf story. The main character tells the protagonist, tells the reader that she has a condition and she has an appointment that she has to go home for. She's trapped in an airport. Her flights keep on being canceled. And she has to get home for an appointment because of her condition. And what she never says in the story directly is that she is a werewolf and the full moon is coming and it's getting very down to the wire and she needs to get home. And my editor said, perhaps you could put a few more references to, to wolves or to werewolves in here. And I thought, I, I don't know that I do because then everybody who reads this story will will feel that this this is without a doubt a werewolf story. And I want the story to work for readers who don't feel that it's a werewolf story. I want it to be a story about somebody who's stuck in an airport and can't get home as well. But Sean Tan's illustration was, was another way to handle that. He sent that and it's a woman who's clearly a wolf of some kind uh, reclining in an airport, uh, in, in, in an airplane seat. And I was so happy because it was a way to put in that last signal that my editor wanted, but it didn't have to be in words. It could be sort of a, a visual metaphor if the reader wanted to, to have, have that version of the story. Yeah, that story and several other stories here, I was also going to point out that swimming pools are sort of a recurrence, either swimming pools, waterbeds, <laughs> water. <laughs> And I kind of wondered about that because all of these stories, and we talked about this the last time you were on the show, this nighttime logic and this dreamy state that fairy tales evoke and that your stories always evoke. And swimming pools and waterbeds are kind of a great way to do that because they're otherworldly. You're, like you're, you're, you know, you're put in this environment that necessarily isn't your own. You know, now you're out swimming or you're floating or something. And I was wondering about that, if that's just sort of a, a thing that seeps in, no pun intended, to the work, or if you kind of look for opportunities for these dreamy metaphors to present themselves, or if if the swimming pools and the waterbeds are just sort of a subconscious thing that, that ble bleeds in. You are, I feel, uncovering all of my secrets. I grew up in Miami. I We had a swimming pool. I also, when I was a teenager, had such bad allergies that my bed was a waterbed and I, I don't have one now. And I honestly, I don't even know that I enjoyed it all that much, but it is a very different kind of feeling to sleep on a waterbed. And now as an adult, I don't live close to the ocean. It is often kind of a trek for me to get to a body of water or to a swimming pool but I am happiest when I'm writing if I have access to water, if I can jump in a lake in between writing and going back to writing, if I can submerge myself in some way. And 
so I do feel for me that there is, it's not conscious most of the time when I'm putting it in the fiction, but I do sort of dream of um, just hanging out in a pool and getting out every once in a while to, to do some writing. And there is the last story in the collection, Skinder's Veil, was originally a very different story. It did not originally start out as the story it became. My first idea that I carried around for a long time was to write a story about a woman who goes home to Miami to help clean out her stepmother's house after her stepmother dies. And she has an encounter with, with a ghost in a swimming pool next door. And I, I was very attached to this idea. I thought that it was, it worked as a, it could, it could work as a version of the juniper tree, which is one of my favorite fairy tales, but I never felt that I had enough to really do the story, the fairy tale, the juniper tree justice. And so instead I ended up folding that story into the larger story of Skinder's Veil, which is an entirely different beast, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, that was another story, sort of the classic, like, wait, where did we start? And how did we get here? And I love that because it marries so many different elements. And, you know, the relationship that you think is the relationship at the beginning kind of dies off and it becomes something else. And it was so much fun. And it was rooted sort of, you know, real world so we can all relate to it and then it just starts slipping like the world just starts slipping under our feet and we're like is it the drugs is it the is it the, <laughs> is it the supernatural is it the <laughs> it was so much fun and i like actually you know there's there are a lot of drugs in the book which i enjoyed because it gave people who might be a little uncomfortable with the the mystical fantasy qualities sort of a door in we're like all right i can get on board with this cuz you know drugs that is that is a great point that there is kind of a, a hallucinogenic quality or a quality maybe just of acceptance that the characters have about the things that happen to them uh and that is very much a pandemic story. I wrote that uh, in isolation when many of my usual routines for writing were very disrupted. I had over the course of the pandemic watched as the town where we have our bookstore was sort of inundated at various points by people driving up from New York to stock up on um on gummies or whatever before lockdown. So you would drive by some of the old mill buildings here that have become dispensaries. And there would be like 200 cars in the parking lot and this long line of people uh, waiting to get their gummies. And I totally sympathize with that. But I did think about them a lot as I wrote the story. You know, it's this is a story about a guy who is in his 20s. He can't seem to get his dissertation finished. He takes a a house sitting job in Vermont where he goes and he lives in isolation. And I empathized with him a great deal. I felt kind of isolated. I was during the whole time that I worked on the stories in this collection, I was also working on a very long novel that I could not seem to get finished. And so I felt a great deal of sympathy for the character that I was writing about.
We'll be back with more from Kelly Link talking about her latest collection, White Cat, Black Dog, published by Random House. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick nudge to check out our Patreon page if you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, if you enjoy these behind-the-scenes discussions of how books get made, this is your chance to support the show. By becoming a backer for a few bucks a month, you'll get weekly writing tips and prompts and some other goodies that Barbara and I find that might be of interest to you. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Kelly Link talking about White Cat, Black Dog. Can we talk a little bit about world building? Because I think that's a tricky thing for people working in either speculative fiction fantasy horror that you have to establish the world and its rules for the reader in kind of a not didactic, you know, interesting way. And all of these stories have to do that and they do it so, so well. And so I was wondering if we could just spend a few minutes on anything that you can tell us about how, you know, you've built the the world out, how you do it without like telling the reader, here's how it's going to work. And actually, in that last story, you do kind of, you can be explicit about it to say, okay, here's here's the rules of how this house is going to work, because these are the house rules, and the reader's like, okay, I guess that's what, I guess that's what they are. <laughs> but, you know, in, in a lot of these stories, you kind of have to sneak it in of this is how this is going to go. And I don't know if there's anything you can say about how you do that. It's a thing that I spend a great deal of time thinking about, which is if you know, I think that every writer has to do some kind of work establishing the certain details about the place, the time, the sort of family group, the dynamics at their workplace, all of the the cultural spheres that they they live in, and how those spheres impact each other and the way that you migrate between them. And the difference is with fantasy and science fiction is you are often writing about places or ideas of places that that have never existed except in fiction. And so you are relying in part on the work that other writers have done in those genres that have become familiar enough to readers that they you need to do less work yourself in your own fiction or else you have to sort of reinvent everything. And one of the things that I find hardest is science fiction, because you're having to think about things like how how has language changed? Do people still go to the bathroom? What are the sexual mores? Like, what are all the ways in which the world might be different that I probably can't imagine, but I have to try and do it anyway? And then you have to decide which of those things you are going to use as a set of guide rails for the reader and what would be too much, what would be too overwhelming. And every writer handles it differently. I love the science fiction of uh, Kim Stanley Robinson and Ted Chang, and they are in many ways very didactic. They lay out very beautifully, very lucidly interesting things about the world that they are making for you. And then there are writers who are maybe more dreamlike, like Catherine Davis, who has written really gorgeous novels like Duplex or Hell, in which from the outset, the world is so strange 
that you are either going to go along with it or you're not, but she is not going to explain things to you. She is just going to lay out the the beauty and the strangeness of the things that she is telling you. So with every story, I think you make a, a different set of decisions about how sturdy that world building is going to be, how thorough or or how oblique. And often it comes down to character. How is it that the characters see the world? What are the things that they take for granted? So they're not going to explain what are the areas and the things that they are interested in. And so they have all the time in the world to tell the readers about. And so approaching it through character is is usually the way that you do it. And then, of course, there's the fact that the future uh, or a fantasy world is not going to be the same for everybody, depending on the amount of money they have, the kinds of privilege that they have, the kind of protection that they have. And the other aspect of that is the things that they believe may or may not be true about their world. And so one of the really fun things to do, and one of the things I think that makes fiction believable, believable, science fiction or fantasy believable, is to suggest the things that the characters believe are true, but then to reveal that those things in actual fact are are conventions of the time that they live in. Mm-hmm. I love that these stories play across all of those. As you say, for each story, you have to sort of reinvent that. And so the reinvention of voice and the reinvention of rules, like I'm thinking there's a story in here called The Game of Smash and Recovery, which feels so different than the other stories to me. And and like you say, some of the world building can be a little bit more oblique. Some of it can be very explicit, like it was in the last story. And so, yeah, that's one of the pleasures of short stories is it gives you an opportunity as writer and as reader to just start from scratch every time. Like I started the book thinking, oh my God, this is hilarious. Like I, I was laughing out loud so many times during the opening story. And as I went through the book, they weren't all as laugh out loud funny. And my husband said, oh, I, I don't hear you laughing as much through the stories. I'm like, well, they got a little darker. <laughs> They, they do get a little darker. And I, of all the stories in there, I think the one that is most likely to cause some trouble for readers is um, the game of Smash and Recovery. It is set in the far future. There are a bunch of things in that story. There are vampires and handmaidens um, and all sorts of things that are not, that don't map onto what our ideas of vampires and handmaidens are, even the idea of what children are you know, and that story turns out to be not entirely correct. Uh, it is a, it is a coming of age story, but it is not a coming of age for a particular kind of person. It's, it's an unusual coming of age story. And my only hope is that because right now so many people are thinking about the possibilities of what it would mean for artificial intelligence to exist, that maybe that story is in dialogue in some way with that. That is how it felt. After I finished, I'm like, I'm going to have to read this one again. But that is, I mean, as much as I could, yeah, Garner, I was like, this this feels very AI and very, very futuristic. Yeah, I just love that you played on every single key of the piano in, in, and, and allowed 
all of these beings of vampires and zombies. There's lots and lots of animals in here and dialogue with animals and, you know, which is another wonderful fairy tale convention that allows you to do a lot of things. So that was that was fun too. Tell me a little bit about the animals working with animals. Is this the is this the most you've done with animals in the past, or did they did they populate the the stories more than they usually do? Or tell me about that aspect. I think that there are more in this collection than usual. I, you know, I this is something I'm probably going to say a great deal when I talk about this collection, but there's a list of ideas or suggestions that Joy Williams has or short story writers, things that you should think about. And my favorite of those is short stories should have an animal in them to give a blessing. And I have been talking about this with another writer, Kevin Brockmeyer, who reminded me of it. It's one of my favorite of her rules. And I, I'm very happy with the idea that, that the fairy tale form encourages the animal to be there to give its blessing. And one of the things that most delighted me when I finished, when I had enough stories for a collection was that I could move away from the kind of titles that my books, my collections had had in the past and instead have this very concrete title, these these two animals, the white cat and the black dog. And that seemed to be, it seemed to me to, to say something about the space that that I had placed those stories into. Yeah, I mean, we should say that White Cat opens and Black Dog closes it, which gives it really this nice container. And and like I say, as you're playing every key of the piano, it sort of is the the bass and the treble of the book. And then there's just so much, you know, dance and play in between. So that was really fun. Okay, let's talk about that first story because A, so funny, so, so funny. And and B, again, obviously it accomplishes so much and it ends in a place where you know you had to go back and say wait where did this start so tell me a little bit about where that started for you as writer like what the original conception of that story was and and kind of how it unfolded and maybe surprised you as you were writing it i wrote that story for for this for an exhibition catalog that was going along with an exhibit of fairy tale art so my remit was fairy tales and the White Cat is one that I like a great deal. It's also one that I have heard my friend Holly Black talk about a great deal. She wrote a young adult trilogy, and the, the first book in that trilogy is White Cat and plays with the fairy tale. And what she pointed out, has pointed out many times, is that that is a fairy tale about a king who sends out his three sons on various quests to find things with the idea that he will appoint one of them his, his heir and make that son a king. And so the fairy tale follows the youngest son. And what Holly pointed out is that the youngest son, as far as we know, doesn't really seem to care whether or not he's king. He's not particularly invested in the quests that he's sent out on either. Instead, each time, the first time he stumbles into a mysterious kingdom, which is populated by, by very human-like cats. And he stays there for a full year, not doing anything at all that he should be doing on his quest, but he's just partying with some cats. 
And uh, at the end of the first year, when he's supposed to go back to his father, he says to the ruler of, of, of the cats, he says, I was supposed to bring this thing back for my father and I forgot about it. And the white cat says, well, don't worry about it here. Take this back to him and gives him the thing that he needs to fulfill his quest. And so he goes back, his father sends them all out on a second quest and he goes straight back to the kingdom of the cats and he parties for another year. And so what it always seems to be is a story about a guy who ends up with a beautiful wife and he ends up being king. But the thing that we actually see him wanting to do is hang out with some cats and and party. And so that was in the back of my head. And I thought it would be interesting to write a story about the marriage uh, because he ends up beheading the cat, the white, the beautiful white cat who becomes a beautiful woman who he then marries the son does. And I thought, well, what happens if that marriage goes south, if he turns out not to be a great husband and also what kind of wife would this magical being be? She's constantly providing him with gifts in in these nutshells. You crack open the nut and um, there's a beautiful suit of clothes or there's, there are various things. And so I thought, would she, in fact, you know, when they, if they had children, would she send their kids off to school with, with a nutshell, with a beautiful lunch inside? And so the story, the marriage ended up being a different kind of marriage to a different person. But that was the starting place was thinking about being married to somebody who is a magical being with a great deal of power and what would happen if you weren't a great husband. It sort of felt like succession meets Trump or something. <laughs> like I envisioned I, the youngest Trump boy. <laughs> I have, I have not, I have not watched succession yet, but I have heard a couple of people say that and I'm sure I will watch it at some point. No, it's best you don't know. It's it, and and it's your own, you know, Kelly Link magic sprinkled all over it, which is, yes, it was just very laugh out loud, funny, and heartbreaking, and you know, and and the way all of these stories were, oh. they were just. I also have to call out your character names because you know Prince Hat is probably the best name ever. <laughs> <laughs> that story is in some ways a retelling of East of the Sun, West of the Moon. That was that was the last story that I wrote for the collection. And I had told my editor, Caitlin, that I would write one new story. And I was really interested in what her favorite fairy tales were. And when she said East of the Sun, West of the Moon, that was uh, in some ways great because it is also one of my favorite fairy tales, but it was also terrible because I love that story so much that I was afraid of 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 not doing it justice or of doing something boring with it. So when I was thinking about how to approach East of the Sun, West of the Moon, I looked at a couple of variants. And one of those variants is in fact called Prince Hat Underground. And it's such a great title for a story that I thought, well, I'm just I'm gonna use that title. I'm gonna Think about a contemporary setting in which somebody is married to someone named Prince Hat and and go from there. But the, the character names throughout the entire book are fantastic. They're just a little off. I mean, some of them are very conventional. I mean, I love that Prince Hat is married to, I think, a guy named like Gary. Yes. <laughs> which is so, yes. 
You don't get more, more white bread than Gary. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a little hard on, on poor Gary. I think he feels it. No, I, names are a big, big thing for me. The, the part of figuring out a character has always been figuring out their name and their relationship to that name. How does it fit their sense of self? How is it opposed to their sense of who they are? Names have, have a talismanic weight. You know, there's a reason why you don't give a witch your real name because names have a kind of power to them, especially in, in fairy tales. And yeah, and you really play with that, especially in the, the last story, the rose white and rose rose red of, of mistaken identities and all of that. Yeah, it's really, it's really wonderful. You alluded to a novel, which I now can't let you off the hook on, because we had talked last time you were on eight years ago, you said you had been tasked <laughs> with writing a novel. <laughs> and um, and I always wonder about short story writers versus novel, you know, can you can you essentially be one and the other and making that shift in mental landscape across that different terrain. And I was just wondering if there's anything you can say about that and whether the novel is is going to be your form or if your first love is still the short story. T- tell me a little bit about that. I think my my first love is still the short story. Part of the business of figuring out what kind of novel I wanted to write was figuring out what I could do in a novel that I would not be able to do in a short story. Because if something was possible to do in a short story, I would just do that instead. I didn't feel any enormous inclination to to pick up a novel. But I was really curious about what I might be able to do in one. And so I spent a great deal of time not doing anything as formal as coming up with a list of things that only a novel would allow, but I did spend a great deal of time thinking about things that in a short story I rule out. And one of those was was just time. You know, you're allowing a reader a lot more time with the characters and thinking about having a sort of relay system in which narrators trade off pieces of story. Again, in a, in a story that feels pretty limited, but in novel, you have a lot of space to do that in. And so I also think just the ability to linger a little bit longer. And the thing that surprised me the most in a novel was that it felt much tighter than a short story does, that a short story to me allows for a lot more possibility, and that a novel, I had a greater obligation to proceed in kind of a linear fashion. If I was writing with a lot of different points of view, if I was, the plot had to sort of move along kind of briskly, that I felt that if I was going to make someone read a lot of words, that I had a greater responsibility to, you know, you were talking about weight earlier. And I think my sense of that weight was just very different in the novel. So having finished one novel, I now am tempted to work on a second novel in which I do think many things differently, that that I do want to write another novel, but mostly so that I can try out things that I wasn't able to do in this novel. 
And that's often how I work is that I write a story and then the next story, I think, well, what are some things that I wasn't able to do last time? Or what's a new kind of problem that would be interesting to think about? And so I've been thinking about the next novel and making that one very, very, very short. How many stories do you write that you, that don't find homes? Because I feel like somebody would see your name and they would just publish. <laughs> Is there any discouragement in your life for, for not having things published? Or do you, I mean, do you have things in the drawer? I don't have things in the drawer. You know, I I think that maybe the first half of my career, I spent a lot of time getting rejected by places that I would have liked to have been published by. And that tends not, I still get rejections, but the stories find homes that, that often the places that I am being rejected by, they're places that are, that are getting such a large volume of really excellent stories that, that, and again, you know, I'm, I'm an editor. I know that not everything that is good isn't necessarily going to be to somebody's taste. And so setting aside the question of whether or not anyone finds that story good when I send it out, I know that even if it was good, that it may not appeal to every editor. So I, I feel very fortunate. I don't know that this will always be the case that I, that the things that I write find, find homes, but at the moment I have had a pretty good run. Yeah. And it's, I think it's nice for writers to hear. Yeah. Even if something is good, doesn't mean it's going to land in the place you want it to land. And it's such a numbers game, especially. For yeah. Your writing. yeah. The thing, the thing that I, I will tell people when I'm, when I'm teaching a workshop or, or talking to writers is go into a bookstore and uh, look at, look at your favorite genre and just pick books off the shelf at random read the first page and think, do I want to pay for this book? And no, you're not going to want to buy every single thing on the shelf, but all of those books were bought by somebody and were publishable clearly, but your taste, uh, if you were an editor would mean that some things you're not going to, you're, you're not going to respond to, you're not going to be the best editor for. Um, and I think it's a useful reminder that that you know that it's important that you are satisfied by the things that you have done in the piece of writing and it is obviously extremely frustrating when you can't find the right editor for that piece but it doesn't mean that the work that you did wasn't good um you may in fact be doing that really interesting work uh it's just that that, that there are a lot of editors out there and it hasn't found the right one yet does your job as editor or bookseller, do you think, influence anything about your writing life or do you keep those really divorced for yourself? Uh, somewhere in between the two that I, I find the work much clearer as a publisher or as a bookseller that there I am trying to make sure that people who would love a particular book um, are able to find it, you know, whether because I'm putting it in their hand or I'm publishing it in such a way that it is visible to them. Uh, and I am less concerned with that now as a writer than as a writer. I feel that my job is to do the kind of work that most interests me in a way that that feels 
rich or that feels that feels like I'm I'm doing it in the right way. And after it's out of my hands, I should not necessarily be too worried about whether or not people like that work. Some people will, I hope, and other people are not going to. And that is okay. You know, that that as a writer, my job is is not to make a book that is for everybody, but it is to first and foremost make a book that that I feel I am interested in. <laughs> well, you sure did. This is so good. <laughs> this book is so good. So good. Thank you. Well, we can follow you. Um, you have a great website, and I assume that events are going to pop up there where people can either see you virtually or in person. Are you doing a big tour for this book? I I am not. I am doing, in fact, not much at all. Life is complicated. My husband has long COVID. I have a bookstore. We have a 14-year-old daughter. I have six chickens and a dog. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I am just very, very tired at the moment. And so I imagine that I will maybe do more of a tour for the novel. And this, I will do an event in Boston, one in New York. I will do a couple of online events, but mostly I am just hoping that that the experience that the readers have with the book will will be sufficient. Well, I'm extra glad that we got to have this conversation then because uh, it's so great to hear the stories behind the stories and and how they were born and how they were thought about. And this is... uh, what a great collection. It'll be one that I keep pressing into everybody's hands when they say, what have you, what have you read? That's great. I'll be like, have I got a book for you? (laughs) Oh, well, I, I thank you so much. And this was an absolute pleasure. Oh, for me too. I sure appreciate it. And, uh, and I can't wait for the novel and I can't wait to talk to you about that one. Oh, well, I will very much look forward to that. By then maybe I will be embarked on on another novel and <laughs> I've forgotten how miserable the, the forthcoming novel was to write. <laughs> we'll look forward to that day. Yes. <laughs> Kelly Link. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Kelly Link. The collection is White Cat, Black Dog. It is published by Random House. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two hours in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for this week. Tune in next week. And thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.